the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. States, NMLS, Consumer Access. The following program is sponsored by Reaching Hearts Ministries. Hello and welcome back to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oxentenko will have a message for us in a moment entitled Creation 2. Very exciting, very interesting message, and I know that you'll enjoy it. If you'd like to know more about this ministry, you can always call us at 877-788-5371. 877-788-5371. Now we'll need to bring this to you in two parts due to our time constraints. Make sure you join us tomorrow or go online to download a copy of this message to your personal library at any time to listen to the entire message. Let's get underway. Here now is Pastor Michael Oxentenko. It took six hours for people to realize that a 64-year-old man from Brooklyn, New York, had died on the subway. Can you imagine that? Eugene Riley looked fine the whole time. He was sitting up for the whole six hours, and his eyes were closed, and no one nudged him to check him out. People sleep on the subway all the time. Have you ever slept on the subway? Anybody here? I have slept on the subway. It seemed natural. It seemed to be okay. His eyes were closed, but people sleep on the subway to catch a wink at the end of a busy day. In fact, I have missed my exit because I slept on the subway and had to come all the way back. So he just sat there and no one noticed that he was really dead. From 1 o'clock a.m. to 7.15 a.m. on January 23, 2006, he rode the subway as if he were a living, breathing man. No one stopped to examine him to see if he was alive. There are many people in the world today who ride the subway of the Christian church and they are really dead inside. They've not examined themselves to see if they are alive. Paul says at the end of time that dead Christians would have a form of religion but deny the power of it. They would have a theology that denies the power of God and the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They would deny the power of the living word of God by going their own path and seeking their own will. They would act like they are Christians, but they would be dead on the inside, riding the subway to ruin. A Christian without the cross is like a sailor without a sail to power his ship. He is arrested before he ever starts the journey, and he's unable to set his sail to a friendly wind and really go anywhere in life. A Christian without the cross is a Christian in name only because the cross is the central unifying event in human history And in your history, without the cross, you go nowhere in life. It deals with your sin. It sets your heart right and free before God. The person who accepts the cross of Jesus Christ, of necessity, accepts Jesus as the ultimate teacher for his thinking. How many of you want to be self-taught or God-taught? I want to be God-taught. And the cross of Christ is the greatest lesson that the world can know. The person who accepts the cross of Jesus Christ, of necessity, accepts the teachings of Jesus in the Bible. Now, that may sound like it's clear, but we live in a world today where Christians would like to substitute music for biblical truth. Am I right or wrong? Where liturgy has taken the place of a gathering in the Holy Spirit that's based on God's Word. Where people have come to substitute personality-driven theology 
instead of biblical teaching that's derived by a personal interaction with the Word of God in our lives. And so we live in a time where many Christians are on a subway. They're dead. They have a form of religion, but they deny the Word of God. They deny the teachings of the Bible, and they are in a culture that denies it. We must not surrender to that problem. A Christian without the cross is not a Christian at all. Paul wrote, but far be it from me to glory, to glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Thinking Christians today will never surrender the cross to be thinking Christians. Thinking Christians will never surrender the teachings of Jesus in the Bible without, by so doing, surrendering Jesus Himself. You cannot separate the two without knowing it. Many Christians today have surrendered Jesus on the cross without really thinking about the implications of this subconscious surrender. They ride the subway and they look like they are alive, but they're really dead in the pew. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is a binding link between the first Genesis and the beginning God and Genesis 2 at the cross when Christ says, it is finished. There is an utter dependence between what happened at creation in the Garden of Eden and what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane and at the cross of Calvary. You cannot cut the book of Genesis off from the Gospels that lead us to Jesus. If there is no creation in Genesis and there is no Eden, there is no cross that means anything in our lives. The Christian that surrenders the truth of creation must of logical necessity also surrender the cross as truth. Friend, Jesus will not allow you to have a cross that means nothing. He will not allow you to empty the cross of its power at the time of the end. And He will not allow false Christian teaching to get into the way of that central truth of the Christian faith and of the Bible. I'd like to go on a journey through the teachings of Jesus and the apostles of the early church that depends on the veracity of the story of creation. How many of you have your Bibles in your hand? Raise them high if you do. I mean, coming to church without a Bible is not a good thing, is it? Most Christians do not know that every aspect of Christ's life and ministry showed respect for the literal reading of Genesis and the creation of the world. I was reading C.S. Lewis many years ago, and his book Mere Christianity, and I was just horrified to see him give this philosophical argument for Jesus. And then at the very end, to argue that somehow evolution is part of God's plan. It blew my mind. But because he was relying on philosophy to understand the deep things of God, philosophy, that is your undergoing principle, will lead you to evolutionary thought because philosophy isn't good enough. In Matthew 1.1, here is the very first sentence in the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In the Greek, biblos genesios. You hear the word genesios? Yesu Christu, Wiu David, Wiu Abram. Literally, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. According to the very first line in the New Testament, Jesus is Genesis all over again. Jesus is Genesis all over again. Christ is a new beginning for the fallen sons of Abraham. Creation number two for us. Matthew 1.18. Here it is again. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. Literally, the genesis of Jesus took place in this way. And then the Holy Spirit is mentioned as the agent of his birth, like the beginning of the world at creation. I mean, you can't separate Christ from the beginning. 
The genesis of Jesus means there was a genesis that preceded his genesis. His coming into this world is built on the pattern of how the world was made. And then the Holy Spirit is mentioned as the agent of his birth, just like the beginning of the world at creation. The same spirit that hovered over the waters in the beginning hovered over the womb of Mary. Matthew assumes the truth of Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, in the genesis of Jesus Christ. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what it says way back then. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. John starts his gospel like Matthew by assuming that Jesus Christ is creation number two for every one of us. John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The first word in the Bible is the first light. And when God said, let there be light, the living word was there. He says in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God. Genesis 1-2, there was darkness and no life. Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light. And John is clear, the light of Genesis 1 is Jesus. The coming of Jesus to this world is Genesis again, creation number 2. John 1 verse 9, the true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. John 8-12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If Genesis is a myth, then the claim in Matthew and John that Jesus is Genesis number 2 is a myth as well. The entire gospel story must be set aside as fallacy if the first story is false. If there is no Genesis 1, there is no Jesus who can help you have a new Genesis. In Luke, the genealogy of Jesus Christ goes from Jesus to Joseph to Heli to Maphet and so on to Abraham and from Abraham to Noah and from Noah to Adam. Luke 3.38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth. Here's the genealogy, the son of Adam, the son of God. If Adam was not the son of God for the human race in the Genesis story by special creation, then who is Jesus? Christ is nothing Christ is the Son of God in the genealogy, the second Adam. How many of you have animals in your house that you have a hard time controlling? Anybody here that? Now, Smokey is not as hard to deal with as Avalanche was. Avalanche was difficult to deal with. I had a hard time when I let him loose in the house. I'd say, Smokey, come to me. And he'll run the other way. I don't have dominion over my own dog. Now, some of you might. I mean, he'll obey me if he's on a leash. Because he knows he has to. But as soon as he's off the leash, he does not obey. I have no dominion over my dog, Smokey. In Genesis 1.26, God gave Adam dominion over the wild animals and the fish of the sea. In the gospel accounts, Jesus has dominion over the animals just like Adam did. Look at Mark 1.13. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Jesus moves without fear among the wild beasts. Why? Because Jesus is the new beast master in the New Testament. He is the second Adam. He has all the power and prerogatives of Adam in the beginning. So if there is no Adam who was the beast master, who is Jesus showing up as the beast master in the Gospel of Mark? 
In Luke 5, Jesus commanded the fish to jump into the disciples' net. He does the same thing in John 21. Christ appears in the Gospels with the dominion that Adam had over the animals in Genesis. For Matthew and John, Adam is Genesis 1. Jesus is Genesis 2. Creation number 2 all over again. As a teacher, Jesus clearly affirmed the truth of the Genesis account by Moses. Mark 10, 16. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Look at Matthew 19, 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, I'm married happily. I'm very grateful that God made a male and female so I can have a beautiful wife like Diana. I hope that's not a sin, is it? Of course not. Anyone here of like mind? A few of you? Okay. And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. So they are no longer two, but what? But one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Jesus' moral teaching on marriage is based on the veracity of the Genesis account of the creation of man and woman. If a male and female evolve, then Jesus' moral teaching for marriage collapses quickly. Am I right? So if we don't have the true story in the beginning, what in the world is he saying here if it really wasn't the way it was written? Matthew 19, 8. He said to them, For your hardness of heart, Moses, allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. Mark 13, 19. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will be. We live in a time when Christians are saying God really didn't create. It kind of evolved maybe with God tweaking the laws of nature. But he really didn't, through supernatural divine fiat, call into existence. Christ says God created it. There was a time in which he created it. And he says the end will come in relationship to a beginning. Jesus taught that God created the world. God will judge the world. And because he is the creator, he is the judge. The world is morally accountable to God because God is the creator. God established the beginning of history and God has control of its end. In the creation story of Genesis, God instituted the Sabbath on the seventh day. In Genesis 2.1, here's what it says. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work which He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all His work which He had done in creation. One reason the vast majority of the Christian faith has rejected the Sabbath is that they really don't believe in the Genesis story. They really don't take the book of Genesis seriously. And because of that, they're not listening to Jesus as He is interacting with the Word of God seriously. Jesus recognized the veracity of the Sabbath in creation as seven literal day work of creation that ended with the seventh day. Mark 2, 27, 28, And He said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. When Jesus was dying on the cross, He searched the Old Testament for just the right words to end His life, to seal the everlasting covenant, to show that the promise that was made in the beginning was kept at Calvary. It was Friday and the Sabbath was approaching. John nineteen thirty. And when Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. 
And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, why was he saying that? Because he was quoting the promise he had made at the creation of the world in Genesis 2, verse 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Now, August 31 is our anniversary. If there was no wedding for us on August 31, then our anniversary means nothing on August 31 every year. Am I right? It means nothing. But because the wedding happened on August 31, the covenant happened on August 31, August 31 means something forever. Am I right? The seventh day, the Hebrew word seven, comes from the Hebrew word that means to swear an oath because it's the covenant day. When Abraham made an oath in Genesis 21, he swore an oath, he made a covenant. They called the place that this had happened Beersheba because it was the well of the oath, which means well of the seven. The seventh day is the covenant day. If there was no creation week and there is no Sabbath day at the end of that week, then Jesus' words mean nothing at the cross. Friend, the Sabbath is the end of Genesis 1. And the Holy Spirit will never contradict the covenant of God given at the creation of the world for those who need God till the end of time. It is finished. We hear that in Genesis on the seventh day. And at the cross, we hear the same words. Creation number two all over again. It is finished. Christ's blood becomes the blood of the everlasting covenant because He confirms what was promised in the beginning. Friend, Christ was buried on Good Friday. He rested on the seventh day, which is Saturday. And He was resurrected on the first day of the week. It's no accident Jesus dies this way. Jesus recognized and honored creation in His death, burial, and resurrection. On the seventh day, God finished His work, which He had done. Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You know, there are Christians today who don't believe Jesus' work was good enough. They believe that it was insufficient for our acceptance with God. They believe that somehow we got to do something to make it better. Friend, the seventh day Sabbath is a sign that we are finished by faith before we start. Before we have a full day of life, we have a day of life and rest in Jesus. And that the journey of the Christian is based on a rest relationship, not legalism. And I believe the change of the Sabbath in history has thrown the Christian church into a legalistic state where it now views the law of God as that which is contrary to God and to Christ. And this dichotomy is not heaven's dichotomy. It's a human invention. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath because He was there in the beginning at the creation of the world on the Sabbath day, the seventh day, the oath day, the covenant day. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath because creation really happened in seven days and the Sabbath is the seventh day with Jesus. If Genesis is a myth, and the Sabbath is a myth, then Jesus' words are ridiculous. His teaching is a fool's folly. And He is a madman for teaching it. But if He is right, then Genesis 1 is real. There was a real Adam. And Jesus is creation number 2, the second Adam for you and me all over again. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil. I mean, that's how I read the story, that she came to the tree, right? There was a serpent there. And... She was tempted. Am I right or wrong? That's how it reads. In Luke 4, Matthew 4, and Mark 1, Jesus is led by God into the wilderness where He is tempted like Adam by the devil. The same pattern in the Gospels we find in the very beginning. If there was no temptation by a real devil in the beginning, then why is Jesus being tempted the same way? 
Throughout his ministry, Jesus recognized the serpent of Genesis 3 as his personal nemesis in life. John 14, 30, he said, For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me. John 12, 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Genesis 1, the serpent defeated the first man in the Garden of Eden. and He became the ruler of this world. Genesis 2, Christ defeats the serpent. He casts him out at the cross. Same kind of conflict except the devil won in the beginning. Christ wins here. Again, if there is no real temptation in a real garden with real people called Adam and Eve by a real devil, then what in the world is Jesus doing at the cross? Why is he dying on that cross? And why does he make the claim to defeat the devil at the cross? In Genesis 1, God speaks as the Spirit hovers over the waters of creation. In time, a man appears and God blesses that man. He says, be fruitful and fill the earth. At the baptism of Jesus, which is the standard and pattern, the voice of God speaks again like that at creation. The Spirit hovers over Jesus like a dove hovered over the waters of baptism there. Just like God's Spirit hovered over the waters of creation. And God blesses Jesus like God blessed Adam. As God said the light was good, God says His Son is good. And God pronounced that the light was good at creation. Now the light of the world is there at His baptism. Matthew 3.17 This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father of lights knew the light of the world as His Son. And God said, let there be light and the light was good. I don't know about you, but I'm not always good. If you are, you're better than me. But I don't think you are. I think probably you're like me in that regard. God blessed Adam in the beginning because God is good. Jesus is the light of creation, the second Adam, all in one. The baptism of Jesus teaches us that Jesus is the second Adam. Adam is Genesis 1. Jesus is creation number 2, all over again. So when you're baptized into Jesus, you have the power of God working in your life to give you a new beginning. And it means that you are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. You have passed from death to life. You cannot be condemned in the judgment day, not because you are good, but because Jesus is good. Because God's pronouncement at Jesus' baptism becomes your verdict in the judgment day. Romans 6, Paul says that the one who has died in baptism has been justified from sin. They are cleared and they are accountable to God in Jesus, freed from the penalty of the law because of the one who died for that penalty. The apostles, faithful to Jesus Christ, affirmed the creation account of Moses as real history. Romans 5.14. Now this is in the context of the great statement, Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam is Genesis 1. Jesus is Genesis 2. 1 Corinthians 5.22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Timothy 2.13 and 14, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Jude 1.14, it was of these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, 
Behold, the Lord comes with His holy myriads to execute judgment on all. If God did not create Adam, and if there is no Enoch, and if the Genesis story is nothing but myth history, and there is no seventh generation, there is no seventh-day Sabbath to give us the pattern of rest and of covenant of victory, the seventh generation born from Adam makes no sense. Then Jude's logic is false and flawed. It's deceptive at best. It's evil if that is the case. If God did not create Adam, then Jesus is not the second Adam. And God has no right to have a moral claim in your life or anyone else's life. Friend, God has a right to be the Lord of your life because the one who saved you made you. If we evolve, God has no right to impose moral order on any of us. And the cross is unnecessary to save us from a moral fall that never happened. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now think about it. If Eve did not exist, and man and woman evolved through deistic evolution, theistic evolution, or just plain evolution, let me call it evolution, then we have no danger of a devil in life. He's a myth. So why do we even think such a thought? And really, we have no right to condemn people who do evil things because we have no way to know it's evil. And Paul's teaching has no basis to be a warning. If evolutionary thought is true, the devil does not exist. In the Bible, the serpent is part of the Genesis story too. In the New Testament, the word devil is used 34 times. The word Satan is used 53 times. If there is no real creation with a real garden and a real temptation, then there is no real devil and The New Testament is flat out wrong. And Albert Schweitzer is right. It is the myth of the historical Jesus. It is not Jesus. And he doesn't matter. Friend, the book of Genesis is a real record of a real conflict between Christ and Satan that goes back to the beginning. Well, there you have it. The first portion of Creation 2, today's Reaching Your Heart. Make sure that you go to the website, reachingyourheart.com, if you'd like to listen to this entire message. We'll bring you the second portion of this broadcast tomorrow. Our phone number is 877-788-5371. You can find that online along with other information there on the website, reachingyourheart.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, we pray that God is reaching your Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.